A quick disclaimer, the thoughts and opinions expressed on the Doored Up podcast are strictly those of the hosts and guests of the show and do not reflect official policies or viewpoints of any law enforcement, government, or public service entity, nor is the Doored Up podcast officially affiliated with said agencies. The Doored Up podcast contains mostly true stories told by the law enforcement officers, firefighters, emergency medical services personnel, military veterans, and first responders who lived through them. Some names and details may have been changed to protect the anonymity of persons involved. Realize that some listeners may be familiar with these stories, and we would encourage them to refrain from commenting with any clarifying details that might violate that anonymity. Listener discretion is advised. What's up, everybody? It's me. It's your host, Drew. I'm here by myself tonight. Uh, just because of the way things have worked out in the last couple weeks, uh, I haven't exactly been able to stay on my episode-a-week schedule, so I do really apologize for that. Give me just a second here. And uh, so I'm recording El Solo Mio tonight. It's just me. Uh... I got a couple little topics and some stuff that I wanted to talk to you guys about because I'm going on six episodes into this and I've realized very quickly that I haven't... Yes, you've heard me tell stories about myself. You've heard me relay my own experiences um, in talking with my friends that come on the show, but I also haven't taken the time to really introduce myself and kind of uh, lay it out who I am and my background and what I do. And so tonight's episode is going to be pretty quick. So it's just going to be me. And I've got some audio that I'll touch on here in a minute from an interview that I did several years ago with a good friend of mine. I'll, I'll dump that in here as well. But I just wanted to take the time to kind of introduce myself to everybody and uh, make myself known and talk about my background a little bit. So like we talk about all the time, we live in a rather large city in the rural mountain west. Uh, I can't disclose exactly where just because I want people to feel safe. People that I work with, I want them to feel safe and comfortable coming on my show and talking about where we live without worrying about repercussions from, say, from their agency. I try to conceal that information, keep some anonymity so that we can operate safely amongst ourselves and not get in any trouble for the things that we might say for the when we're on the show. So it's... It's very awkward for me sitting in here talking to myself, essentially. Uh, you guys are going to hear that, that it sounds way different tonight than it usually does. I'm in a different room than I normally am. I'm using a little bit different setup than I normally use. But I just wanted to sit down and lay some things out and talk about some of my military experience from when I was a young man. So I'm what they refer to, what's currently referred to in a lot of circles as a 912er. I was a senior in high school on 9-11, September 11, 2001. And that changed a lot of lives, obviously, that day. Some for good, some not so good. I had been toying. I was 17, getting ready to get out of high school and figure out what to do with my life at that time. And I had no plans and no ambitions. I was just kind of aimlessly going along through the motions of high school and trying to figure out what to do and applying for scholarships for college because that's what you're supposed to do. That's the, that's the social norm. So I was very much falling into that. And then 9-11 happened when I was a senior in high school. And that very quickly changed my viewpoint. My older brother and a couple of good friends of mine 
uh, had already enlisted in the Army National Guard at that point, and they'd been in for a period of time before me, a couple years at that point. But that cemented it in my mind that I I felt the need to do something bigger than myself to contribute, to try to help, and just be a part of trying to make things better from what had happened from that in any way that I could. So for me, the the answer was enlisting in my local National Guard unit. So in September, mid-September, just several days later, I was talking to a recruiter very quickly after that, like a lot of other young men and women at that time. And I only had a few options. I've talked about that before on the show with the unit that I was joining of jobs that I was able to do staying at that unit. You talk with any service member, they'll tell you that a recruiter's job is to obviously recruit people, not always necessarily to tell the full and total truth about a young person's options when they're joining the military. And that was not explained to me at the time. It is what it is. Knowing what I know now, I would have done something probably a little different. I still would have done it. I absolutely would have still enlisted in the service, but I would have done it a little bit differently, given a different chance had I known a little bit more. So I began trying to enlist at age 17 and my parents were not on board. They were supportive of me wanting to do my part and be a true citizen to our country and to go off. But they, they could see the writing on the wall with the political climate and the things that were happening in the world. They knew that that probably meant wartime. By the time that talks were very serious with a recruiter, we were already at war in Afghanistan. My mother was not, she was not hot about it at all. And she did not want to sign any paperwork, basically allowing me to enlist at the age of 17. Uh, but we got through that. And by the time I turned 18, in January of, of that year, when I was a senior, I was on my way and I'd been to, I had been to MEPS already uh, at least once. I got down there uh, for my first screening and they're going through all my medical paperwork that I had filled out with my recruiter. And there was one question about hay fever and allergies and I had checked yes, and that hung me up. And then they asked if I had a family history of asthma. I said yes. And at the time, I was a smoker. I smoked cigarettes. I still am, unfortunately. I wish I could quit. And I've quit a few times, but never with any dedication to it. So they decided that they were going to test me for asthma over the course of what ended up being a year and a half. Put me through rigorous medical testing through MAPS. And I finally got enlisted in April of 2003. At the time, I felt like I was kind of missing out on things because we'd already been in Afghanistan for, you know, almost a year and a half and had moved on to the war in Iraq. I remember sitting in the MEPS center, watching on the big screens the day, I mean, within moments of raising my hand to enlist, to swear in, and watching the 3rd Infantry Division roll into Baghdad on CNN and thinking, well, shit. I guess I'm just going to miss out on the whole thing, but that's okay. At least I'm still trying to do something, trying to do something with my life. So I ended up enlisting. That was in April of 03. I had some obligations that I couldn't get out of and uh, couldn't ship out to do my basic training the way that I wanted to until September of 2003 because I wanted to do basic training in AIT, my advanced individual training, all at once in one shot. Just knock it all out. I don't want to stop and have a, I wasn't, I mean, I was graduated. I was out of high school. Didn't want to have a gap in there, you know, of waiting another year on delayed entry to go to AIT and finish up my training before I was considered, really considered a soldier and 
being able to be a contributing member of my unit wherever I landed and whatever I ended up doing at that point. By then, I knew that I was going to be a field artilleryman, a cannoneer on a M1 or 8 155mm howitzer. I knew that was going to be my job. I was ready. I was expected to do good things at that unit because, you know, like I said, my older brother had come from that unit. I knew a lot of the guys there, the younger guys, and things were just expected. I mean, I was eager to get done with it. So I ended up going to Fort Sill, Oklahoma. For 16 weeks, I was there from September of 2003 until January of 2004. I got to come home for Christmas, but that's it. And I was there for basic training and AIT all in one shot. Me and I think about 120 other guys that I still talk to at least one of those guys that was my battle buddy. He wound up, I met him, you know, flying down, shipping out to basic training, you know, at the airport in my hometown. I'm standing there and here's another guy with the same big manila envelope folder of, you know, his whole packet, his personnel file that he's got from his recruiter. You ever see a young man with a backpack standing around smoking a cigarette nervously in an airport carrying a giant manila folder? He's shipping out somewhere. He's nervous. So shout out to you, Eric, if you're listening. We still keep in touch. He's a Blackhawk pilot now. He stayed in after I got out. So cheers to you, buddy. So I got through that, and I think I, I'm not sure if I've talked about it on the episode before, but I was in basic training at Fort Sill when Saddam Hussein was captured. I think that was November or December of 2003. And I remember uh, one of my drill sergeants came into the bay and they had a copy of the Stars and Stripes. And there's Saddam's picture, you know, when they pulled him out of the spider hole and he's all dirty and long beard. He's been hiding out and running from the coalition forces ever since they invaded. And I remember having this thought, you know, that same thought that I had in the MEP Center, you know, several months prior. I'm just sitting there thinking... Well, shit, this whole thing's definitely going to be over by the time I get out of here because there were, there was rumors about deployments for my unit and they were sending a lot of National Guard, they were activating a lot of National Guard units and sending them over in support roles to help out with, uh, you know, all these things that all the active duty had gone on the, on the initial invasion and they had all these jobs building infrastructure and support roles and all these units that, you know, they had all these security needs and nobody to fill them from the active army. So they were pulling national guard units and training them as military police units. And then they'd ship them over there for a deployment. And they were talking about all that. They'd done it in Afghanistan. So they're going to use that same model in Iraq. And, uh, I got through, graduated from, from, uh, basic training in AIT in January of 2004 after a short Christmas break. And I got home to my unit I got home uh, at the time. I was still, you know, I had nowhere else to go. So I was living with mom and my stepdad. And it was a Sunday night when I walked in the door from coming home from basic training. Walk in the door in my class A's. Haven't seen my mom. I saw her a couple weeks before that on Christmas leave, but only for a few days because I was a busy young man trying to do things that busy young men do when they're on leave. And I walked in the door and my mom was like, hey, you got a call earlier today from Sergeant so-and-so at your unit. He called and was looking for you. And my first thought was, well, they knew exactly where I was. My second thought was, well, it's not a drill weekend. My third thought was, holy fuck, I'm getting deployed. And I basically ran through this checklist aloud as I'm standing there talking to my mom. And she's like, what do you mean? I said, well, there's no reason that that certain admin NCO would be at the armory if it's on a Sunday night, if it's not a drill weekend, unless we're getting deployed. That's a warning order. 
So I called him back and uh, he answered the phone. First thing he said, this is not a secure line. I was like, okay. He said, this is your warning order for uh, deployment in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom. I was like, holy shit. Like I just got home. I've been gone for four months. So I made some phone calls and spoke with my commander uh, in the following days right after that because obviously they barely knew me. They knew my name. They knew that I was slotted on the board to be fallen in on the unit, but they didn't really know me and my personality and how I worked and my work ethic and anything about me other than what they'd been told by my brother and some other friends. So some conversations with the commander and he asked me if I was willing to go on the deployment. I was like, why the fuck would I be here if I wasn't willing to go? That was January mid, I think God, it had to have been earlier, mid January, 2004. And by the end of February, 2004, I was at a mobilization site with the rest of my unit in Fort Dix, New Jersey for quote unquote, you can't see my air quotes. I do air quotes and finger quotes a lot for theater specific training. After spending, I think about eight to 10 weeks in Fort Dix, New Jersey, the only correlation I can find between Iraq and New Jersey is that if you go into the wrong place of town, you're going to get shot at. Aside from that, there's nothing familiar between, you know, the, the Pine Barrens of New Jersey and Baghdad, Iraq that we were supposed to go to. And it just kind of went from there. And that was obviously, you know, I was a 19-year-old kid. Well, I take that back. I just turned 20 years old. Just turned 20 while I was in basic training. I had no experience in the real world, although I considered myself learned. It was a very fast and brutal education in the ways of the world outside of the United States. And uh, real quick, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump into this audio from a couple years ago. A good friend of mine that served with me, or I served with him, he's still serving for several years, was tasked with basically creating a documentary of our time for that unit on that deployment to Iraq in 2004, 2005. Because up to that point, that unit had not been deployed in wartime since the Korean War. And it was pretty monumental for unit history for us to get get deployed and then to catch the mission that we caught, which was protection of high-value government officials from the Iraqi government. And we just, we literally just kind of stumbled into it. You know, they needed, they needed a unit of warm bodies to help with site security, and we were it. That kind of changed my whole life. You know, that's 14 months between February of 2004 and when we got home in April of 2005. So real quick, I'm just going to, I'm going to mute my mic and I'm going to turn on this audio. I apologize. It's a little, it's a little ringy. It wasn't the best setup that we had on the day that we recorded it, but I'll, I'll pause it here in a few places and explain some things about what we're talking about. You guys can't see the video. I'm not going to post the link anywhere to the video because that'll give away a little more information about me and uh, some of my other friends than I than I'm comfortable giving away at this point. Maybe someday in the future, you know, after I'm comfortable enough to maybe after I retire from my current position in law enforcement, I'm, I'll be willing to share more of this information and disclose that. But for the time being, you guys are just going to get kind of a raw cut of that, and then I'll I'll come back and edit through some of this stuff later. And you'll hear the same white noise bleeps that. I put in for pretty much anything when I'm going to edit it out. So I'm just going to start this and you guys can listen to me talk. This, this interview was conducted 
uh, in the summer of 2018 for this documentary that my friend Buddy was putting together. And he ended up <laughs> getting deployed again. And as far as I know, this project is still unfinished, but he conducted months and months and months worth of interviews, thousands of hours worth of interviews with unit members. And just talking, sitting down and talking with him about, you know, our, our time in service together over two deployments and several years in between of normal, what's considered M-Day National Guard service. There's so many stories. And still to this day, some of the best friends that I can ever have asked to have been gifted with to walk this earth. I mean, giants among men that um, some of them are still with me. Some of them aren't around anymore. And that, that sucks. But these stories help those guys stay fresh in my mind. So I'm, I will always take the time to share those stories in any way that I can. And this is just a small part of that. So I'm going to shut the fuck up and you guys can listen. Uh, well, I was on the baggage detail, so I got to ride up front uh-huh. in front of the plane because I was I volunteered for it, which was I learned later, you know, in life that you don't ever volunteer for anything because that was miserable because there was numerous connexes of stuff that we had to unload into this plane. It took us all day, but the ride was nice, you know, because yeah. I drifted back to the back of the plane where all the rest of the guys in the line platoons were, and it was like rats in steerage, you know, <laughs> just cramped in there like sardines. But I remember we stopped in Prague in the Czech Republic um, after flying across Atlantic, and we stopped. We've been flying all night, and they were like, there's going to be barriers up. Don't go past the barriers because this country isn't particularly U.S. friendly. And so we're like, I remember was there, you know, that's like I said, how many stories do I say? <laughs> and we're like peeking through the barriers and there's dudes with AKs walking around, you know, so it's like, well, we're not in Kansas anymore. You know, this is, things are changing. Like, I don't know what to expect. I'm way out of my element. I've never been, you know, out of the U.S. before. I'd never traveled internationally. So landing in Prague was like, that was a step beyond that. Um, so we... From Prague, we went to Kuwait. Um, it was Camp Beering at the time, right? Or was it still so. Wolverine? I couldn't remember. I think it just transitioned. Yeah. So we spent... It was less than two weeks. I mean, it was, wasn't was a long time. Yeah. They're in Kuwait just kind of getting used to being out in the heat. And I remember they had us out like every day. They'd make us gear up and just go walk around in the fucking desert. <laughs> we went out to a couple of ranges, got zeroed. Um, with everybody's weapons and everything, and they still hadn't given us ammo. And I remember being freaked the fuck out about that. Like, you know, because they wouldn't tell us exactly what day we were going for OPSEC purposes. They didn't want everybody, because everybody was trying to call home, and at that point still, you know, just so, hey, we're, we're almost here. Right. Um, but they kept saying that OPSEC was a huge deal. They always did, they always have, and they always will. Whatever. Um, but I just remember being really freaked out that we didn't have any ammo. You know, they didn't issue us any ammo before we left Kuwait. So then the day came, and they're like, all right, you guys are flying out, so they ship you over to Ali al-Salim, somewhere over there. Mm-hmm. Um, we sat in, like, this fucking garbage bag. It's like <laughs> black plastic tent, and just sat there and roasted all day until they finally got us onto a C-130. 
and just crammed us in there. We had two platoons, if I remember right. Um, first and second platoon were on one plane. Mm -hmm. So we got crammed onto the plane, and if you've ever ridden on a C-130 in the cargo nets, it's not comfortable. You know, so we were all geared up. Like, the easiest way to transport all our gear is just fucking put it on, you know? <laughs> so we had our vests and our rifles and our helmets and everything. And then sitting there with two dudes' knees and your balls, and your knees and two other dudes' balls, you know, because you're just crammed in there. And you're sitting sideways. And the plane took off, and they told us it's going to be about an hour and a half flight time. Um... So I was like, okay. I remember looking at my watch and going, okay, an hour and a half from right now, we're going to land. Uh, so we got up in the air, and they had these little barf baggies that were going around. And everybody that knows will know that his sense of humor is a little different than most. And uh, I remember he's like, he handed me one. He's like, stick that in your pocket. It's wise. Like, it'll work good for a sucking chest wound <laughs> to seal a sucking chest wound. Um, so we got... I remember me and because it was so loud you could barely hear trying to talk to each other because those planes are so loud. And I remember leaning over to and saying that it had been about an hour and a half. And it was like, I wonder when we're going to start heading down on a descent. And it was like, they just dropped the guts out of that plane. And uh, I've, I have, I can't say that I've ever been on a roller coaster or anything that rivals that drop into Baghdad. Uh, and then landed in Baghdad, touched down on the ground, and they were like, all right, get the fuck off our plane. We're, like, we're leaving because we're sitting here waiting to get shot at. And they dumped us off, and it was humid. You know, I expected just dry desert. I didn't know what Baghdad looked like. I'd seen, like, in the urban city, but I'd never, I didn't know how green it was. Right. I had no idea. It just blew my mind. It was like, this is so so much more fertile than I thought it would have been. And we got in there just at night, and then they told us, okay, here's this gravel parking lot, and that's home for you guys. What do you mean? And they're like, well, you're staying here until your unit gets here to pick you up, which ended up being three days, if I remember right, sleeping on my sea bag in the gravel parking lot. We all called it Pebble Beach. Yep. And, uh, that was awful. That was getting there like I hope the rest of this year doesn't go like this because it's going to be a long year so at this point in the in the interview uh, there's a cut scene um, and Buddy had asked me about how we got into the city from where we were at when we arrived in Baghdad and that uh, spent those lovely lovely three days at Pebble Beach and uh, eventually I'll put some pictures up on the, if I can, I'll figure out a way to put some pictures up on the Instagram page so you guys can kind of see what I'm talking about and get some reference for this because it was fucking miserable. I won't say it was the worst three days of that deployment, but stepping off the off the plane and walk, you know, dragging all of our, sh doing the duffel bag drag off the plane, the receiving unit, the Air Force guys are like, all right, that's home for you guys. So yeah, that was pretty shitty, but that was... There's a little cutscene in there where he broke and we're talking about that. But I'll, I'll interrupt a few more times as we're going so I can explain what's going on because there's, there's, there's title cards in the video that you guys can't see. So I'll break through and announce that. But I'll shut up. Um, unbelievable. Like, because there had been all this stuff that, you know, we had so many questions before we left Fort Dix. 
because none of us, there had been a few of us that had deployed. Um, there was a couple guys that were prior service infantry that had been to like Kosovo, um, some places in Africa, you know, where they'd been around. But there was virtually nil combat experience on, you know, OIF, OEF deployments at that point. Because um, the guys that had invaded were getting ready to come home. They'd been there about a year. So there was no experience. Like we didn't know what to expect. We didn't know anything. So they kept telling us, "Yeah, your unit's going to be there to pick you up. Um, they're going to have your trucks, and they're going to have all your ammo, and they're going to come pick you up, take you to the wherever we're going, and then they'll just fall in on them." Okay, sweet. So that's what they kept telling us, kept telling us, kept telling us. And they're like, "They're coming." They're coming. They're bringing. They're coming to get you guys. Like okay. So then, like, it gets down to crunch time, and they're like, okay, we've got to get you guys there, um, but they don't have trucks for you. Like, okay. How are they going to get us there? Like they're bringing five tons, which you know in the artillery world we were super familiar with five tons. So they're like, yeah, um, it's going to be uh, open top five tons with sandbags in them, because at this time, like IEDs weren't prevalent. I mean, it was, they'd still stand out in the street and shoot it out with you at that point. IEDs weren't a thing, so armored vehicles were just starting to become a needed asset. So they drove, I don't know how many, five-ton flatbed, you know, just boxbed trucks out there. And they had plywood, um, big slats of plywood propped up on the sides. And uh, the floors were all lined with sandbags and they crammed about a platoon of guys with all of their bags and gear, most of their bags and gear, into the back of all of these trucks. I say most of, most of, most of our bags and gear because we had one Connex that had, like, most, a bunch of guys' sea bags, and, like, basically, guys didn't prioritize where they put their gear. They put their gear in the wrong bags, which wound up, you know, we're putting gear in the wrong containers that were supposed to go in the wrong right places. So dudes had very important gear, like, you know, fucking body armor and shit like that, that they, that they really needed that wound up in their, their big tote boxes that we were given or their sea bag and wound up in this other connex. It was kind of an overflow connex. So being part of the baggage detail that I talked about earlier when we were shipping out from Fort Dix, we load all that shit up. And the overflow stuff goes into this extra connex, and they're like, they're going to put it on a boat, and they're going to ship it to you guys, and you'll get it in a month. You know, once you get settled into country, it'll be perfect timing because you'll get there, you'll have, you know, your housing all set up wherever you're going to be. You're going to be into your mission, and then your extra gear is going to show up. So we're like, okay, we can deal with that. So several months goes by, three or four months, and dudes are starting to ask, you know, when we're having these meetings with our squad leaders and platoon leaders and guys are like hey where the fuck's that connex with all of our shit in it some guys had a bunch of gear that they had to get replaced once we got in country they kept putting off the answer like they wouldn't answer the question wouldn't answer the question so finally they had a buddy in headquarters headquarters platoon go down there like hey man what the fuck's up the deal with this connex he's like no shit you this is i swear to god if you say you heard it from me i'll fucking kill you in your sleep it got shipped to afghanistan so instead of coming to us in baghdad this connex gets rerouted somewhere. Shit gets fucked up, as it does in the military. Snafu being what it is. 
And this Connex gets shipped to Afghanistan with all of our fucking gear in it. So if I remember the story correctly, one guy, like a, <laughs> a platoon sergeant from headquarters platoon, if I remember correctly, had to go to fucking Afghanistan, like lay eyes on this Connex, make sure it was still sealed. Like, okay. And they load it up and they get it to us like, I don't know, 90 days before we fucking left country. And dudes are like, well, I already replaced all of this shit. Now I got to find somewhere to pack all the rest of this fucking gear. That's the rest of the story to that. What I said, some of our bags sleeping on some of our bags that got loaded up into the trucks with us to go into Baghdad. So I'll shut up. And they came up with like a garbage bag, like an ammo can of loose ammo. Said, okay, uh, we're giving each guy like five to 10 rounds of ammo. So they divvy up ammo and we load into the back of these trucks and they're like, all right, we're going to drive across Baghdad. Like, you've got to be fucking kidding me. <laughs> like, okay. So I remember getting into the truck and we drive all the way through Biop and we get to the gate. And I remember, I can't remember who it was, but I remember somebody next to me looked at me and said, only shoot at what you know you can hit. Like, if shit goes down, only shoot at what you know you can hit because you've only got, like, I think I had eight rounds something like that and that was probably three more than everybody else had because I they tend to be that way <laughs> and uh, that drive across Baghdad like that first time out the gate rolling into Baghdad was shocking to me to see the city and be out there like driving through traffic and just being so completely overwhelmed with the potential threat of everything. Because at that point, it was an, an insurgency. We didn't know who the bad guy was. There was no uniforms. There was no, there was nothing clear cut. I mean, it was the guy driving next to you in the car in traffic could be the bad guy for all you know. And we had no clue. So it was just, that was my first experience being in a combat zone, outside the wire, a live weapon, and just being utterly terrified. But trying to keep up that macho bravado with everybody else. Like, yeah, yeah, I can't wait. Like, let, let them try it. You know, but everybody's literally sweating, you know. It was, it was awful. Okay, that's pretty much the end of my interview from the video, but I wanted to share that with everybody because I was trying to come up with some things that I could talk about by myself and still have something that I can just roll through pretty easily out off the top of my head and from memory and those stories will forever be etched in my in my mind. I will never forget being terrified and afraid of what was going to happen in the unknown. That first time rolling out the gate from, I think it was Camp Victory at the time, at the airport in Baghdad, rolling out of the gate to central Baghdad, where our forward operating, operating base was that we were going to be working out of. And rolled in through there, through the checkpoint, and looking at the guys that had been there for a year their uniforms, and their weapons were, you know, completely caked with dust, and they're just, they looked disheveled, like they'd been there for a fucking year, and they were ready to go home. A year and some change at that point, because this would have been, if I remember correctly, May of 2005, and those guys were beat. They were ready to go home. I was 1st Armored Division, 4th ID, 3rd ID, excuse me. I could have that wrong. I'm working off just memory right now and nobody else to correct me. So if I'm, if I'm fucked up, I'm sure some of my dudes will let me know, but yeah, rolling in there and 
seeing those dudes that we were replacing these active duty MP units and they were, they'd been in the shit for a minute and they were ready to go home and we got set up in this awful tent city, just plain white canvas tents. They weren't even GP mediums with liners or air conditioning or anything. And I came to expect that as we, as we went along with shitty housing. It was just a part of life, but we got there and got set up and, get shown to where we're going to be and get our squads into the tents and had plywood floors and cots, which was nice. Weren't sleeping on a gravel parking lot. Got set up with our squads and everybody's kind of, you know, getting the lay of the land, figuring out where the chow hall is and where the shitters and the showers are. That's some of the first things you do when you get lined up at a new base. It got dark that night and we got indirect fire. We got mortars shot at us that first night and immediately it was like well i'm here there ain't no going home it's okay to be scared because i could tell everyone else was scared too some guys more than others but i remember thinking well if nothing i'm going to be able to do about it if it's my time it's going to be my time and i'd been there for a couple of days you know actively out in the you know outside of the city for minutes at that point. And I remember having that very clear, cognizant thought. Well, do what you can to keep yourself and everybody else safe. But there's no guarantees in this game. Years later, thinking about that as a 20-year-old kid, that's pretty profound. But yeah, we got mortars shot at us that first night. And uh, one of them was an illumination round that got stuck. And we didn't find it until the next morning when the sun came up was right outside of our tent. It was an illumination round, and they hadn't even pulled the arming pin on it, so it was just stuck in the dirt. But we didn't know that at the time. That didn't fucking matter, so we were all pretty wound up about that. But that was a pretty regular occurrence at that at that FOB when we were there for about a month, and then we moved out to a couple different ones over the course of the year deployment that we were there. Bounced around all over the city of Baghdad, but I'll talk more about all that stuff later in other episodes. I just kind of wanted to touch on that and some of my thoughts as a as a young man very quickly realizing how how fast I was going to need to grow up to deal with this shit that I was going through and it even wasn't it wasn't traumatic it wasn't you know I wasn't getting directly shot at at the time you know but thinking about my mindset at the time and how fast those reactions in my brain and like coping with that stuff that's pretty pretty crazy just how essentially a child can deal with that. Because there was guys that were younger than me. There were guys that were 18, 19 years old, you know, that didn't have what I would have considered my life experience at that point. So we, we all got through it together. Very, very close band of young men that I still keep in touch with a lot of those guys. And I'm going to get some of them on the show here very soon. As soon as I, our schedules kind of clear up, schedule dependent. But I talked in there about my buddy Jason. He's going to be on the show. We've, we, we grew up together, went to school together and, uh, joined the, the same unit at about the same time and very quickly latched onto each other as, as friends and cohorts and colleagues on that first deployment. And we've been very, very good, close friends ever since we work together. Now I helped him get hired on with the same law enforcement agency that I worked at. And at the time, 
His wife was one of my supervisors and his now wife. So I like to credit myself with having introduced them and now they're married. Um, But he's going to be on the show here eventually too. But I just wanted to uh, knock out a quick episode because I know I get get some complaints from some naysayers and people complain that my episodes are too long, but I don't really give a shit. Don't listen to the whole thing at once. If, if that's the case, I, I see the analytics analytics and I can tell that most people listen for about 40 minutes at a time before they just get bored or they got something going on. That's how long they're driving in the car, how long they're at the gym, like whatever it is, they still come back and they still finish the episode. So I do greatly appreciate everyone that's listened so far, everyone that's told someone else about the show. This has definitely been a word of mouth project as of yet. And I haven't been let down at how many people have come to me, reached out to me and said, hey, I really like what you're doing with the show and I would like to get on the show at some point. And these are people that are in the same career field as me and in other career fields at the same time. So I just wanted to knock an episode out real quick for everybody. I want to apologize for the the lack in episodes over the last couple of weeks. I got I got my dick knocked in the dirt from that big winter storm that we had and All my plans to record some episodes really fell through. And I've been busy with some other work commitments and just busy with life. I have a full-time job and a family. I do need to rest every once in a while, but I do I do want to say thank you again to everyone who's who stepped forward to say thanks and offered their support in whatever shape that might be for the show and for what we're doing here. So with that being said, I'm gonna shut up. Because I'm just rambling by myself tonight. I hope if you don't like this episode, you guys can skip it. Give me a shitty review on iTunes. I don't care. Whatever it might be. Anyway, this has been episode whatever this is going to be of the Doored Up Podcast. My name's Drew. I'm your host. We talk with first responders, military veterans, fire, and EMS. People connected to them, get their t- stories straight from them. You can find us on iTunes, on Apple Podcasts, and Podbean. Find us at. Uh, www.thedoorduppodcast.podbean.com or it might be backwards from that. I can't really remember at this point. Make sure you find us on Instagram at the Doorduck Podcast or Doorduck, excuse me, at Doorduck Podcast. Give us some support there. Reach out. Everybody stay safe. Stay frosty. We'll catch you on the next one. <laughs>